Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And this is the fourth and final episode of our mental health book review that we're doing on Prince Harry's memoir, Spare. And I'm looking forward to getting into this conversation because as we've seen in the past previous three weeks, there's lots of drama uh, within this the story. However, we're starting to get up on some of the like happy kind of, I guess, conclusion sort of um, stories in this memoir. So it started out really sad. And then as time goes on, the hope that the main character in this memoir, Harry has has steadily increased. So looking forward to getting into some of that stuff with y'all. But to start out, like we always do, what were some of y'all's takeaways from this section? And for those uh, reading along, we went through chapter 30 of part three to the end of the book. My biggest takeaway is that Prince William is a bitch because he hit a grown man who is also his brother and knocked him to the ground multiple times throughout this section. And I'm just like, who do, who who is starting fights with your sibling in your late 30s, early 40s? Not only that... They're not fighting back. So at that point, you're just assaulting somebody. So we talked about the physical violence, but he was also very verbally and like mentally abusive to his brother, like playing all these games for no reason. Like the fact that him and Kate really went to them and was like, you hurt Kate's feelings because you talked about her hormones. Like, are you kidding me? You were pregnant. How are you upset about that? I'm just going to read this hair, uh, air and spare drama um, verbatim because it pretty much sums it up. And the topic of the day is facial hair. So, quote, after all the stress of asking Granny for permission, which we'll go back and talk about because that was a whole other thing. Uh, Granny permission to, to marry Meg. I thought I'd never have the courage to ask her for anything else. And yet I now dare to make another ask. Granny, please, may I? For my wedding, keep my beard. Not a small ask either. A beard was thought by some to be a clear violation of protocol and long-standing norms, especially since I was getting married in my army uniform. Beards were forbidden in the British Army, but I was no longer in the army, and I desperately wanted to hang on to something that had become an effective check on my anxiety. Illogical, but true. I'd grown the beard during my voyage to the South Pole, and I'd kept it after returning home and it helped along with therapy and meditation and a few other things to quell my nerves. Sidebar, if you haven't listened to episode three, go back and listen to that because we talked about the many things Harry used to um, uh, treat his anxiety and PTSD. But moving on, I couldn't explain it though. I did find articles describing the phenomenon. It made me calmer and I wanted to feel as calm as possible on the day of my wedding. Also, my wife-to-be had never seen me without it. She loved my beard. She loved to grab it and pull me in for a kiss. I didn't want her coming down the aisle and seeing a total stranger. I explained all this to Granny, and she said she understood. Plus, her own husband liked to rock a bit of scruff now and then. Yes, she said, you may keep your beard. But then I explained it to my brother, and he bristled. Not not the done thing, he said. Military rules, so forth. 
I gave him a quick history lesson. I mentioned the many royals who had been bearded and uniformed. King Edward the Seventh, King George V, Prince Albert, and more recently, Prince Michael of Kent. Helpfully, I referred him to Google Images. Not the same, he said. When I informed him that his opinion didn't really matter, since I already gone to Granny and gotten the green light, he became livid. He raised his voice. You went to ask her? Yes. And what did Granny say? She said, keep the beard. You put her in an uncomfortable position, Harold. She had no choice but to say yes. No choice? She's the queen. If she didn't want me to have a beard, I think she can speak for herself. But Willie always thought Granny had a soft spot for me, that she indulged me while holding him to an impossibly high standard, because air, spare, etc. It irked him. The argument went on, in person, on the phone, for more than a week. He wouldn't let it go. At one point, he actually ordered me, as the heir, speaking to the spare, to shave. Are you serious? I'm telling you, shave it off. For the love of God, Willie, why does this matter so much to you? Because I wasn't allowed to keep my beard. Ah, there it was. After he came back from an assignment with the special forces, Willie was sporting a full beard, and someone had told him to be a good boy, run along, and shave it. He hated the idea of me enjoying a perk he'd been denied. End quote. They just wanted everything funneled through them, and they wanted to be the speaker box and the kind of like the grandmother's keeper kind of thing. And this is like, I mean, it's power dynamics in a royal family, but it's power dynamics on top of power dynamics and any control that they could exert, they would have. And it's just abusive people being abusive. I mean, I get it. It's a little bit of that like older sibling syndrome too. Like, well, I had to do it this way. Why are you getting away with everything? But at the same time, it's facial hair, right? Like if it had been such a big deal to you, why didn't you have the balls to ask your grandmother for you to be able to keep it, right? I mean, I feel like they argued about uh, what he was allowed to wear as well. Like, <laughs> William was upset about that. It's just kind of like, I don't know how much of that is just being an older brother that feels like you should have got everything you wanted because you were the first to do it versus it actually being he's just a hypocrite because he thinks everything should go exactly the way he planned it. So, And I think there was something in there about like how uh, I guess William didn't get to wear the type of uniform he wanted to wear or something like that. I don't know much about the context of it, but I'm pretty sure Harry did way more in the military than William ever did. Like actually being put in harm's way, but who's to say? But I think throughout this section, a lot of like pettiness rolled out on, uh, first of all, it's not like I must go back to the the simple like sentence there where he's like, I command you as the heir speaking to the spare to shave your face. Like, what do I even do with that? Um, we we already determined how we feel about this man, but goddamn, prepared for a wedding. Now, granted, uh, my wedding was much more simple. I think the maximum people that we could have was like 50 at ours. It was a very small thing. And it wasn't super duper stressful, but like getting ready to be married. And uh, Harry has explained that he's doesn't like to be in front of people and that. And like they would have loved to just have like a simple little wedding in Botswana with like a friend officiating. But it was like, 
nah, we're not doing that because you must put on a show for the people. That's kind of the, the um, expectation. But as they're obviously going and getting ready for this very like stressful wedding and of course like a life together and stuff like that, Kate's freaking out about the bridesmaids dresses and the the tailor and this and that. And it's like she didn't text uh, or Megan didn't text her back fast enough. And this like carried over into the stuff. And um, later on, it was they try to like hash it out after the wedding and stuff like that. And like, we already talked about like the hormones thing. And then there was like another one where it was like, uh, Megan needed some lip gloss and was like, Hey, can I borrow some of your, your lip gloss? And I guess there's like a cultural difference where like certain things are not done, but it incredibly petty. Like you can't lend somebody your chapstick, you know, it's like, it, it, it seems incredibly petty. And then like, Oh, you didn't get us Easter presents. Like there was just a lot of that kind of stuff. So I'm interested in y'all's thoughts on that as you like you read through the different ones or if there's ones that I didn't catch there. So I think coming into this book, I kind of I won't say I, I like Kate, but I didn't have anything against her. After reading some of this book and finding out how she really acted, I really just like I can't stand her either. She's just as bad as her husband. Like, how are you upset because somebody told you you forgot something because you're pregnant? It's biology. It's not even by talking about your hormone to try to embarrass you it's a million things probably going through your head and the fact that you had a whole tantrum about this dress when they told you what to do to fix the problem and you were to hold out that's why it didn't get done because you were holding out it gave me i don't know if anyone's seen john and kate plus eight back in the day but like it gave me very strong kate vibes like oh it's it's all ruined now like it's ruined and, and you know, no, like we don't need to remake the dress. Like you can just tailor it and like alter it in a little bit. No, new fabrics, like just over the top Karen, like she has everything but the haircut. Yeah. And she was like, they have to be completely remade. There's no saving them. And uh, what did she say? One of the kids like tried it on and she cried or something. Yeah, she she said that that she put it on and she was just in tears. I'm like, what little kid puts a dress on like thinks that it looks like a bag? So um, actually, this gave me like flashbacks, like bad flashbacks. But like it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Like it's so petty and it's such little petty stuff that if you complain about it, you sound like like the a-hole because you're complaining about this super dumb petty thing that can't possibly be. Well, you're thinking it is because nobody would be quite that petty or do things that are quite that petty that number of times. So like while this is all happening around you and things are escalating over a dress or a fabric or a text back or any little tiny misunderstanding, it's everything is a problem every word out of their mouth is a conflict every nothing's gonna ever be good enough and like i was talking to somebody about it today like with people like that the hope like just there is no hope like it's just who they are like that's they're going to keep doing it it's going to be that petty the best thing you can do is like walk away take care of yourself but like ugh. But like this is death by a thousand paper cuts. If anybody wanted to know like the real life, like thousand tiny petty crappy. Well, I think too, you have to remember that while all of that's going on and the dress and the just 
crazy pettiness on all sides from, you know, the staff with the crown tiara situation and the dress and everything. Megan's also dealing with the fact that her father straight up lied to her and has been in cahoots with the paparazzi and the press behind her back. Oh, and by the way, is also now not coming to her wedding to walk her down the aisle. So she's got like all this real shit going on. And then you've got somebody like in every corner kind of like poking her with petty shit. I'm honestly surprised she didn't pull a Britney Spears, shave all her hair off and like run out of the place. We're going to get to the mental health toll that it took on Megan later in this episode. But um, that's a lot that that's and also you got to figure too, like culturally, like walking into this, like everything is like. What is the protocol? Like, what is, you know, can she wear a veil because she's a divorcee and like the whole, like, even to ask the queen if he can marry her, like, it just like the power and the business likeness of, I'm making up words, y'all. But it's like, is this family? Is the, are these humans? Or is this like a, you know, transaction? It, it, it's, it kind of switches back and forth. And it's like, you don't even know what to really. And so as he's like having these conversations, he's really like, are you, are you really upset? Or like, I'm trying to gauge, like, are you being serious right now? Are we really like going back and forth for a week over a beard? We're going to transition into a couple of other important topics. I think that are kind of covered throughout this, which um, obviously we're going to get into money, power control, but also like how, if you don't play the game, you lose any sort of protection uh, that might be promised to you as a royal. And we're also going to get into uh, boundaries that have been set and stuff like that. So um, listener, if you're listening and you're like, oh, I hope they're not going to talk just about the petty stuff the whole time. We're not. We started out with the petty and now we're going to get into the the meat and potatoes. So uh, to begin with the topic of not having uh, adequate like protection we'll start on page 318 basically uh harry and megan are um setting boundaries but but this is after you know obviously they find out that they're dating and that he's proposed and stuff like that basically he said quote british press slammed meg for wearing ripped jeans no one mentioned that everything she wore down to the flats and the button-down shirt had been pre-approved by the palace and by no one i mean not anyone at the palace. One statement that week in defense of Meg, it might have made a wor- world of difference. So, end quote. Basically, they would set her up by, obviously, like, because you have to get your stuff approved in order to make an appearance or whatever. And then, of course, they're in cahoots with the press anyway. And it's almost like they offered her up as a sacrifice. Like, yeah, play with this one. And we're going to get into elements of racism later, too, because that's the elephant in this particular room. But another example, this is after, I want to say it was after the wedding uh, on page 351. Basically, Megan had asked Kate, she's like, quote, why isn't your office standing up for me? Why haven't they planned to have this woman who wrote the story and demand a retraction? Kate flustered, didn't answer, and Willie chimed in with some very supportive-sounding evasions. But I already knew the truth. No one at the palace could phone the correspondent because that would invite the inevitable retort. Well, if the story's wrong, then what's the real story? 
what did happen between the two duchesses, and that door must never be opened because it would embarrass the future queen. The monarchy always, at all costs, had to be protected, end quote. And so the heir and spare thing actually translates to the people that these princes choose to marry because Kate will always take priority over Meghan because Kate is future queen. And basically, Harry and Meghan will never be uh, king and queen. So what do y'all think of that? I think that, I mean, yeah, going going back to like the, the tiara that she got to wear, like I think originally the plan was for her to wear one of Dan, Diana's tiaras, which was, you know, outside of the royal family kind of thing, a family heirloom from the Spencer side. And I do wonder if Kate wasn't like, that'll steal my thunder. Like you can't be wearing stuff that, that doesn't really belong to you because you're not the heir apparent kind of situation. Well, I mean, not that we said we're getting over the petty stuff, but it just feels like there's a, you know, line to the throne and there's everyone else who should be supporting them and their life should be dedicated to making them look good, even at the expense of themselves. Um, There was a green dress, I think, situation where Megan went on a first tour or something with the queen and didn't know because no one told her like, oh, we're all wearing green because it shows like our support for, I know, the troops or something. And she didn't wear green because no one told her to wear green. And then there's all these articles about how much of a horrible person she is. Like, it just seemed like the staff around the royal family and some of the members, yeah, they set her up at every turn to make her look bad because it would make them look good. It's still crazy. I mean, even like kind of like when they were having this discussion behind closed doors, Kate didn't want to really admit that she's ever done anything wrong. It's like she feels like she's perfect. She feels like Megan is beneath her. The whole issue with, like, even we talked about earlier where Harry was excited to be an uncle. You're not even letting this young man around his niece and nephew, basically. You think so little of him that it's just like, yeah, we're technically family, but only in the public's eye. Beyond that, we don't care what happens to you. Well, Harry has kind of been literally called despair. I mean, your extra parts from the jump. That's that's what your role is. Like, you know, you're here to support William if he needs a organ transplant or something, right? But then even as, you know, you think of, okay, you're getting married, this is supposed to be one of those significant moments of your life, right? One of those milestones. And even the process there, it's like, and I think, Ashley, it was you who brought it up early on in the book club, but like, loneliness was normalized. And so like, we see him on the cusp of finding something that will make him feel whole, something that will make him feel like he matters and to give him a sense of purpose. Like we talked about it last time. It was like something like he fell off a jet ski and like, he's looking right at an alligator who's like, could eat him alive, you know? And it's like, Oh, I have something to live for now. Like he, we're finally seeing him like come into, you know, that sort of purpose. And like, so in this beginning part of this section of the book where like he's getting ready to propose even that it was kind of like yeah harry and or um william and kate liked the show that megan was on or whatever but like uh chapter 33 it was kind of like willie had already warned me against proposing um and he's like it's too fast he told me too soon in fact he'd actually been pretty discouraging about me even dating meg 
Um, one day, sitting together in his garden, he predicted a host of difficulties I could expect if I hooked up with an American actress, a phrase he always managed to make sound like convicted felon. Are you sure about her, Harold? I am, Willie. But do you know how difficult it's going to be? What do you want me to do? Fall out of love with her? End quote. Um, and I will say that there was a couple of sections or passages in this um, kind of ending of the book where I underlined it and I'm like, perhaps it's because I am a black person and I am pretty like used to seeing racism um, in a lot of things because it's everywhere. But it, I just feel like the way that he was saying American actress and um, the, despite the fact that you're like a fangirl, like of this woman's show, it's it's just like there's something more to it than just her being an actress. Because if it's a problem that she's an actress, I feel like it wouldn't be coming up this late into the relationship. I'm trying to in that same section. Uh, there was another passage. It said, "Quote: He seemed to like Meg, despite his offsided concerns. Kate seemed to like her too." We'd had them over for dinner during one of Meg's visits. Meg cooked and everything was good. Willie had a cold. He was sneezing and coughing. And Meg ran upstairs to get him some of her homeopathic cure-alls. Oregano, oil, turmeric. He seemed charmed, moved. Though Kate announced to the table that he'd never take such an unconventional remedy. End quote. So, I shared the thing about the... American actress, which Harry himself said sounded like convicted felon, the way that he spat it out. Um, and then, okay, first of all, turmeric, oregano oil, like, uh, I don't know, the healing properties of that seems pretty damn harmless. Um, especially both since both of these princes have ingested many a harder drug than that uh, in their day. But she like steps in and is like, he'll never take an unconventional thing like this. I can't happen. I, I, I must say homeopathic cure-all, you know, and it don't, you don't even have to be a black person to like be into some of the like more uh, herbal sort of things. But I just feel like had this suggestion come from somebody who wasn't black, it wouldn't have been responded to like that. Can someone else chime in on this or am I reading too? I literally wrote in the margin, am I reading too much into this or is this racism? Because I just really feel some kind of way. Harry is too nice, as we've said. So he's not going to flat out call something out like this, but someone help me out here. Um, I'm going to speak up for the white family that raised me and say, a lot of thinly veiled things are racist. Like saying American actress in a felony way. I was told to break up with a guy because I don't like his mom. Why don't you like his mom? I just don't like her. Anybody want to guess that, you know, he wasn't white? Like he absolutely was mixed and his mom was the not white part of the mix. Um, so... I think you're on the right track, at least from the way that I was raised. And my mom's obsessed with this family. Uh, so I don't know if she like took notes. She probably did. But it's a very common, you know. And like 
the vernacular, um, it, it still happens. Like that, it's commonplace language that is just normalized that I'm finding out as recently as, you know, like two days ago. Oh, that phrase means this entirely awful racist thing. And it was just so normalized, especially in America. Um, that kind of language and the roots of that kind of language, whether or not they're saying I hate black people, it's the subtext of it. Yeah. When uh, they did their first interview, I think with Oprah and they had talked to someone had said like, how dark is the baby going to be? But they wouldn't say who it was. This section, I was like, Ooh, I think it's Kate. I don't know. Like, but the vibe was just that, like, I think, I think she thinks she's all that. And that like Kate, thinks that Megan is some lower class of human, like just all the interactions uh, made me think of it. So if there was a guessing game and we got to like open the envelope at the end, I bet you her name would be in it. I think for me, a weird situation with this is like, yes, I think it's a lot of racism on that. But the fact that even in interviews, Megan will be like, I never experienced that in the U.S., and I was like, because you were passing, because a lot of people couldn't tell exactly what you were. You weren't dark enough. Your hair wasn't curly enough to people to be like, oh, she's black. People just assume you were something else. That's why you didn't get it here. But when you went over there, they knew. So that's why you started getting more racism that the rest of us face every day. Because to them, you look like a black person. I mean, it's no way around it. That's a very good point, too. Uh, I think the subset of racism is colorism. So even within the Black community, fairer um, skin tones are treated with more uh, white privilege than the darker skin tones. Uh, it's a problem that is still going on today because, you know, racism is uh, generational. Um, and I think, too, there's something to be said of, you know, you take this American actress out of her environment and you put her in a classically racist, the originators. Uh, and um, yes, the, the, you're getting it straight from the source as opposed to the, the diluted uh, version. She did have a level of privilege and, you know, the ability, I think she like went to, you know, like private schools and, you know, kind of enjoyed a certain you know, upbringing, which is not a bad thing. Uh, I always tell people privilege is not in and of itself a bad thing. It's only when it's like turns into entitlement that it can become problematic. But I'm glad I wasn't the only one who was feeling some some racism vibes from kind of just the and again, we're only getting one perspective on this. But it a lot of it, I was just like, well, why is this even a why is this even an issue? You know, something like, oh, I have this remedy that you should try or whatever. I feel like we do that all the time here. We'll be like, oh, yeah, try some uh, apple cider vinegar with this or whatever. and It'll clear it, right? Like, even if we don't take it, we just kind of humor it. And it's like, oh, thanks for the, the tip. Or, yeah, I'll take this home and try it or something, even if we throw it away. Like, it's just, you know, kind of like almost like I feel like Megan was trying to be very hospitable, but it. They even said it like the difference between like how they would dress like, you know, uh, Megan is just like kind of in comfortable clothes barefoot and like Kate is like dressed to the nines like she's going to like a official event or something. So you can tell like how seriously the different, you know, between the heir and the spare and the families, how they take the stuff. And it, it seems to have seeped into like the personality and how they treat each other. 
I mean, it's like the well, okay, like the whole thing is a hierarchy, but like the hierarchy and the racism and everything, like they can't do anything without having somebody like on top. So like I don't know. And they always othered him too, like othered Prince Harry. And so like just I don't know. I just think it's so blatant. I think it's gross. Um, but yeah, this this whole othering. Um, and they would even other him before he got married. It was like, oh, you're not 30 and married yet? Well, we're all household. We all get all the better perks of, like, whatever. So, I don't know. I mean, had this been Emma Watson, he was marrying, nobody would have said anything about any of this. We wouldn't have seen this level of discourse in the family or anything. She would have been treated like a superstar, like she is here. So, it, it definitely has some undertones of racism in it. And I think also... A lot of times she as well probably remind them of his mother and the fact that she's free, free road. She wants to be able to help people and go as she please, where everybody else is just like, we're going to follow everything to the T because we want the notoriety and we want the money. Nita, I feel like you just read my mind because the next thing I was going to share is about money, power and control and how Megan did not play nicely with the way that things were set up. So um, on that same idea of her being like, you know, her own person, like having her own independent career and stuff on page 320, quote, does she want to carry on working? They were asking. So say again, does she want to keep on acting? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't think so. I expect she, she'll want to be with me doing the job, you know, which would rule out suits since they film in Toronto. Hmm, I see. Well, darling boy, you know there's not enough money to go around. I stared. What was he banging on about? He explained, or tried to, I can't pay for anyone else. I'm already having to pay for your brother and Catherine. Then he goes on to say, Pa didn't financially support Willie and me and our families out of any largesse. It was his job. That was the whole deal. We agreed to serve the monarch, go wherever we were sent, do whatever we were told, surrender our autonomy, keep our hands and feet inside the gilded cage at all times, and in exchange, the keepers of the cage agreed to feed and clothe us. Was Pa, with all his millions, trying to say that our captivity was starting to cost him a bit too much? End quote. I would like y'all's thoughts on this. Yes, the spare in the tiny cottage where he can't stand up in the shower, buying a sofa from sofas.com, who has like four items of clothing uh, and eats Chinese food over the sink. Yes, he costs so, so much. Uh, It's ludicrous, right? It's more like, I don't really approve of here marrying. So like maybe I'll come up with other reasons why we can't have her. Or now hear me out like anybody else could have been spending that money and like how dare you ask me for literally like anything um uh like this financial abuse or like i've got my finger in the toehold of like any kind of control over your life like it's gross and i wouldn't be surprised if um his totally wicked stepmother just spent all of it on shoes or whatever um, in some insane amount, but since Harry's to blame for literally rain, 
and the sky having a cloud in it. Um, it's all his fault. And um, yeah, he's not going to be supported. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he can't see the rain or the clouds because he's not allowed to tell the guy to stop parking his uh, Range Rover in front of his one window so that he can get sunlight. That's a very niche thing that if you haven't read the book, you will understand if you read the book. But it didn't seem like he was asking too much. And literally, he was he was like going back and forth with his father after this exchange. And he's like, well, you know, Meg doesn't really eat that much. So don't worry about that. It was like really like he was truly like trying to figure out, is, am I being punked? Like, what is the what is going on here? And I think. You know, that it's always been money is not an issue. Like when you have people like Kate who are like, no, completely remake the dresses last minute. Like where where is the where's the the coaching and the uh the budget uh person saying, Oh, nope, we can't do that. It's it's too expensive. Like I've never heard anybody have any issues with spending money until he wanted to get married and it's like, you're just an inconvenience. It, it's that common narrative, like stay out of the way. Don't rock the boat. Don't ask questions. Don't ask for a hug. Just it. And if you have a problem with it, it's really your problem. And we're going to gaslight you. I think Charles though, too, has uh, always wanted to like tailor down and like pen, pare down how much, uh, kind of fingerlings of support there are in the royal family out to other members, which is fine, I guess. Uh, if you're talking about like money that comes from the government or the taxpayers, but a lot of the wealth, especially the wealth that he held before becoming king, is personal wealth from like lands and things. So it doesn't make a lot of sense unless, like you said, someone else is spending it because Camilla also has children, grown children, who don't serve the monarchy, who don't make any public appearances. But I bet you she's supporting them still. And I wonder how much of it is like, you know, our society is very patriarchal. Like, so the men are expected to provide. If you have somebody like Megan, who is a millionaire probably at this point, by the time they get together, she can afford herself and probably take care of Harry as well. Does it make the royal family look bad? Because they're going to assume, hey, we cut him off. He'll probably still be okay because his wife can just do it. But that makes us look bad because we're supposed to be men and supposed to be providers and all this other stuff that goes into it. And to just drive home this whole royal theme of these people aren't your family, they're your employers uh, kind of vibe that we have going on here. After Harry, like, tries to find the perfect moment to ask his grandmother if he could marry Meghan in the first place, she says, well, I don't even want to get into the how she said it. She's like, well, I guess I suppose, she's like, kind of, I suppose I'll say yes, since that's what you want to do kind of thing. And he was kind of, like, going back and forth in his head, like, is she serious or... What did she mean by how she said that or whatever? And then he's like, you know what? She said, yes, I'm going to just take it for what it is because no no sense in asking follow-up questions. But at the end of that, he said, I wanted, or he said, okay, Granny, well, fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so much. And he says, I wanted to hug her. I longed to hug her. I didn't hug her. 
I saw her into the Range Rover, then marched back to Pa and Lily, end quote. So it's it's really just going back to, we've seen it throughout this book, like, don't grab your dad's hand at your mother's funeral. Don't cry. Don't show, well, first of all, don't touch the queen. Yes, that's your grandmother, but don't, don't you know. And it, it's just the, the cold business-like feel of it. And I mean, we feel smothered by it just reading it. That's, I guess, like a scratching the surface, maybe sort of, of empathy for what this must really feel like to actually experience. And then they get married and it's just a, a million times worse. But for the sake of our listeners to this podcast, let's shift gears to happier time, shall we? This this is this is heading into happy. I'll transition okay. us here. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time he says "I love you," he's kind of like really nervous about it. Obviously, right? He's like kind of mumbling to himself, and then he's like, "You know what?" Uh, and then he's, she's like, "What? Like, what do you have to say?" Because you know he's acting like a crazy person. He's like, "I love you." And then, you know, he just starts counting because he's like, she's not going to say it like this is bad. And she like doesn't just say it. She like runs out of the kitchen into the living room to like tell him to his face. And I was like, okay, that's when I think he realized like she's really a safe person and she's not like my family. She's a normal human who understands emotions. Great segue. Couldn't have planned it better myself. But the proposal so, quote, now I knelt on the blanket, Guy at my side, Guy is the name of the beagle. Um, both of us looked up searchingly at Meg, uh, my eyes already full of tears. I brought the ring out of my pocket and said my piece. I was shivering and my heart was audibly thumping and my voice was unsteady, but she got the idea. Spend your life with me, make me the happiest guy on the planet. Yes. 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 I laughed. She laughed. What other reaction could there be in this mixed-up world, this pain-filled life? We'd done it. We'd managed to find each other. End quote. Goddamn. I'm glad. Because uh, I remember episode one, um, and probably one of the first things that Ashley said was, loneliness is normalized. And so uh, we had to wait 326 pages into this I don't know, 400 page book to kind of get to the moment of, okay, he's got his person. It's going to start to get better from here. Um, Now, granted, they still went through their drama. They still had to kind of, you know, even like the drama with, okay, the wedding is going to happen, but the Rhoda, the the Royal Rhoda is not going to be allowed in the wedding. Like we're putting our foot down. Like they had to basically fight with them on that and all of that, but they're going to get their day. They're going to get their wedding. They're going to get to be married. They've kind of gone through the hard part, so to speak. Um, And so now they're going to get married. I don't know. I just like her. I just want us to talk about how awesome she is as much as we talk about how much of a dick the rest of them are. Cause I, I like her. I think, I think she's a kind, good person. And like, I'm really glad for them. So he starts this one chapter off and, you know, it's the first time you're reading it. You're like, oh, this must be when they talk about when they're pregnant or whatever. And it was like, ah, he got us. But um, it goes, quote, meanwhile, Meg and I were already gro- uh, were already a growing family. We brought home a new puppy, a sibling for a little guy. He had been needing one, poor thing. So 
a friend, uh, when a friend in Norfolk told us his black Labrador had a litter and offered me a gorgeous amber eyed female, I couldn't say no. Meg and I named her Hula, the Setswana word for rain, and good fortune. Many mornings I'd wake up to find myself surrounded by beings I loved, who loved me and depended on me, and I thought simply, or I thought I simply had no right to this much good fortune. Work challenges aside, it was the or work challenges aside, this was happiness. Life was good. End quote. Isn't that sweet? No one's going to rain on his little tiny goblin cottage parade. Like, you got to remember this time, they're still living there, but they got all the all the rosiness, right? They're like, eh, we got our dogs. We've got our little, little garden in the back. We've got peace if we don't go too far off property. I really like that we're doing the happy right now, right? But I feel like I got to go back a little bit because when the baby is going to be born... The fact that the palace communication team feels like they have to create this fake story to feed to the press so that everybody is in suspense when the baby was already here. They're like, oh, she went into labor. How great. Yeah. Who goes who decides to go to the hospital on the back of what is like a people carrier? I don't even know what that is. I'm assuming like some kind of van, but no, no ambulance, no private car. It's like here, lay on the floorboards. We're going to drive you to the hospital so nobody sees you. <laughs> Once again, go Megan. <laughs> I probably should have like mapped this out a little bit better, but we went to Happy for a couple of minutes and that was cute and everything. Um, and we'll get back there. But this is a mental health uh, book club. So I must talk about chapter 60, um, which was basically Megan feeling suicidal. Um, because while we, you know, we laugh and joke about the petty and we talk about the ridiculousness of kind of the, the planning for the wedding and stuff like this, being the target of racism, ridicule, and mind you, Megan is a whole celebrity. So like, it's not like a, oh, they're talking about me or I'm getting attention or whatever. It's not that it is a, there is an without getting too much into it, there is a generational trauma that just lives in the DNA of Black people. And there's more and more like like research to back this up. But she gets tired, right? So I'm going to read uh, chapter 60 in its entirety. It's only like a page and a half. Um, but I think it says it more concisely than I could explain it. But this is the kind of catalyst for moving. You know, we all know that they leave the United Kingdom and moved to the United States. Hence the reason this book has been published. But um, I think it's important to kind of share that here and kind of break it down a little bit. And then we'll get into more happiness, like kids and leaving and all that jazz. So quote, uh, I walked home from the office and found Meg sitting on the stairs. She was sobbing uncontrollably. My love, what's happened? I thought for sure we'd lost the baby. She's pregnant at this time. Um, I went to her on my knees. She choked out that she didn't want to do this anymore. Do what? Live. I didn't catch her meaning at first. I didn't understand. Maybe didn't want to understand. My mind just didn't want to process the words. It's all so painful, she was saying. What is? To be hated like this. For what? What had she done? She asked. She really wanted to know. 
What sin had she committed to deserve this kind of treatment? She just wanted to make the pain stop, she said, not only for her, for everyone, for me, for her mother, but she couldn't make it stop. So she decided to disappear. Disappear? Without her, she said, all the press would go away, and then I wouldn't have to live like this. Our unborn child would never have to live like this. It's so clear, she kept saying. It's so clear. Just stop breathing. Stop being. This exists because I exist. I begged her not to talk like that. I promised her we'd get through it. We'd find a way. In the meantime, we'd find her the help she needed. I asked her to be strong. Hang on. Incredibly, while reassuring her and hugging her, I couldn't entirely stop thinking like a fucking royal. We had a engagement that night at the Royal Albert Hall, and I kept telling myself, we can't be late. We cannot be late. They'll skin us alive. They'll blame her. Slowly, too slowly, I realized that tardiness was the least of our problems. I said she should skip the engagement, of course. I needed to go, make a quick appearance, and I'd be home fast. No, she insisted. She didn't trust herself to be home alone for even an hour with such dark feeling. So we put on our best kit, and she applied dark, dark lipstick to draw attention away from her bloodshot eyes, and out the door we went. The car pulled up outside the Royal Albert Hall, and she and as we stepped into the blue flashing lights of the police escort and the white-out lights of the press's flashbulbs, Meg reached for my hand. She gripped it tightly. As we went inside, she gripped it even tighter. I was buoyed by the tightness of that grip. She's hanging on, I thought, better than letting go. But when we settled into the royal box and the lights dimmed, she let go of her emotion. She couldn't hold back the tears. She wept silently. The music struck up. We turned and faced the front. We spent the entire length of the performance, Cirque du Soleil, squeezing each other's hands, me promising her in a whisper, trust me, I'll keep you safe, end quote. What I kept thinking for Harry as well was the fact that one of his prior relationships he um had a uh young lady commit suicide because the way the press was following her hounding her family so for him i wonder if this felt like deja vu like i can't be going through this again and like when you start acting like your abusers or your immediate first reaction is like what they trained you to do that's a whole nother level of like mind fuck because that's not like him. And so like him thinking about like being on time for something to show up for instead of like stopping everything for the first person in front, you know, like it's kind of a training kind of thing too. And like when you're up against your own like kind of conditioning, that's like kind of where the rubber meets the road, I think. And that's really what makes him stand out from his family um, night and day. Um, because how old is he at this point? 30, 31, like early thirties. Like that's a really, I'm going to sound a little sexist by saying this, but that's a really profound thing for a young man to do that was raised under those circumstances. Um, and 31's young and going against that. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, I, I think about like, you know, think about a time you were criticized like smallly but it it's to like a whole nother level and then to the point where you start to believe it like i don't know how 
that's some mental health struggles that I, I don't even know how you come out of if people are on all levels, taking tiny bits of the truth and twisting them and making you feel like really gaslit, like gaslit to such a level that I don't think anyone can really empathize with because we've never experienced it. And you got to think too, like, uh, like Nita said, like, this isn't the first time someone he's been in a relationship with has been like tortured. And even um, they go into detail in this section, like prior to her even like moving there, like the, the press would like ring her doorbell and like the, the damn dog was traumatized to the point where he became aggressive, like attacking people like that would visit because I mean, it's an animal who has like instincts and stuff like that. And so to the point where they had to get rid of one of the dogs and like give it to a neighbor because the, they would keep harassing and like, you know, she's like a prisoner in her own home, you know? And then it's not even like when we talk about gaslighting, it's like one thing to like make someone feel bad or something like that. This was on another level. Like they took one of her parents away from her. Like granted he's a piece of shit again, in my clinical opinion, but neither here nor there, but they took her, you know, she's still called in her late thirties is calling this man, daddy. Like she adored him. Like her relationship with her father was very important. And so they, they looked for a vulnerability and stuff like that. And he literally sold her out. And so like, she's moving to this new place with these people who suck and she's supposed to play the game, smile, not sue the the people who are abusing her, not wear the wrong color, not in all of this. And it's like for somebody who had freedom, fortune, like a great life. Now, granted, she loves this man and she's making sacrifices. But when people are going for the very things that like constitute your quality of life, like, you know, with it, she talked about her health. And so your quality of life is based in your physical being your psychological, which is your emotions, your social relationships, and if you're a spiritual person, like spiritual higher being stuff, right? Like that's kind of the the legs of your quality of life. They went for all of it. Um, they completely teased it apart and broke it down. And then they're like, now sit up here, look pretty and smile and don't cause any trouble. Like, it doesn't surprise. And also it's just very, uh, as a person, I knew Meghan Markle from suits before I knew any of, of this like royal stuff. The only reason I give a fuck about this royal stuff is only because I love that show. Like I wouldn't know about these people that much if it wasn't for her, but like to see her go from that breakthrough role that she had and, you know, the lifestyle that she was able to attain for herself from that. And they completely broke her down. Like I read the passage before about, I ain't even comment on it, but now that we're here, um, they're sitting around like the men are like sitting around like debating on, well, is Megan going to keep working? And I'm like, what the fuck is this nonsense? Like, if she wanted to work, let the woman work. Like, but it, it just literally dawned on me and it could just be um, that it slipped my mind. I think I was distracted by the fact that Charles is saying like he can't afford her. But they're sitting around debating on whether or not her role will be as somebody who's working or not, which is kind of odd to me. But they took, I mean, everything was taken away from her, not, we could say by choice, right? Like, well, you chose to be with this prince or you chose to move here or whatever. And it's like, 
I think anyone who's ever been in a relationship has had to make some sort of sacrifice, never probably to any of this magnitude. But when you have outside forces just literally like chipping away at everything that matters to you, no shit. She wants to kill herself because it literally when you're told by everything around you that you're worthless, you're not wanted here, you don't belong, you don't fit in, you're not doing anything right, all of this stuff. She literally says, well, if I wasn't here, this wouldn't be an issue. She couldn't even see, you know, past that darkness because, you know, she never allowed herself to believe that Harry and his life was something that brought this upon her because she loves him so much. So it's just like, well, when you take away everything, the physical health, the psychological, emotional health, her social situations, I mean, literally, you tapped into her friend's phones and turned her father against her and all of this stuff. Like, they literally took everything of any substance or value from her. And no no wonder why um, you get to this point. I mean, a person can only take so much and... Uh, as a therapist, I've worked with people who've lost way less, you know, and had way, um, you know, smaller scale things kind of like take out one of those areas. Like it could be just, I have a physical health condition and this is causing me to be so depressed that, you know, people don't have, it doesn't, this world sucks. I mean, we were trying to be happy for a minute there, but this world is a fucking dumpster fire and it's burning. Goddamn. But, you know, it's hard. People can only take so fucking much before your brain starts to go with, well, I don't have to sit in this dumpster fire. And we're not glorifying like suicide or anything like that here. But it's something and I think it's 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 important because not only is this just a celebrity, but this is a woman Um, And so she's dealing with the things that are, you know, patriarchy, like I just said a minute ago, they're sitting around deciding whether or not she can continue to work. The reason she left Suits wasn't because she wanted to or is because she was getting married. It was because the palace wasn't protecting her and keeping these vultures away from her so that she could do what she wanted to do. They didn't care to protect her. So it was making it difficult for them to film the show. Um, And she cared enough about her castmates that she didn't want to continue to cause problems for them. That's why she left the show. So it wasn't a, oh, she's so in love and wants to get married and start having babies. So I'm going to quit my job and be a housewife. That was not her plan for herself, nor was that her and Harry's plan for her. Um, It was because things were taken away from her. Everything was made to be more difficult the second they knew that this person was dating him. So... I don't know how long that rant lasted, but y'all want to comment on the mental health component of this? Because I feel like I've said everything I have, but it's it's intense. And I promise you, if you're listening to the podcast, we're going to wrap this up with some some happy stuff so you can leave feeling a little bit better after we tore you down. Uh, when you were talking, uh, my planner sitting next to me does have a sticker on it that says people are trash and the world is burning. So I do have to remind myself of that every once in a while. Um I, I agree with your rant. Um, I think that, again, they they show their character. They don't want their colleagues to have to deal with this backlash. Um, as someone who has uh, gotten a lot of comments when I have remained a working woman and had kids, uh, people will ask you some dumbass shit that they have no business asking you. 
or really pony in the race. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, uh, it is 2023. Those questions are still being asked to people. So all I would, uh, I would love people to grow up and mind their own business and let people get through this dumpster fire of a world the best way they know how. Um, that's all. I. Yeah. I mean, I just echo everything. Your rant really summed it up. Honestly, it's just trash. Like you have a stool, like you said, you have a stool and these are all the pieces and like one, one piece comes out, you know, you're pretty wobbly, but they just, just cut off all the legs at once. And they were like, swim now you have, you have no appendages. All right. Let's bring it back to happy. Uh, before we get to Tyler Perry saving the day, because why just ease you right back into happy. They go to Canada they're not protected because the bitch ass palace um, basically decides we're not going to cover security. Um, there's this whole thing where he's trying to price different security firms and figure that out because it's not just a matter of, oh, we're famous. We want to be kept away from the masses or whatever. It's truly, you know, on the, the back end of like your wife is suicidal. Like he needs to make sure that you know, I shared the sappy little thing before about like, oh, their family was growing because they had their puppy and they had their dog and they were just like in a little love bubble or whatever. Like, no, they have a child now and they have a baby and they're in another country. They're away from all of the protections and things like that. And because of the fame, it doesn't matter if they want to be in the public eye or not. This makes money. There's nothing the palace is doing to protect them from the the predatory um, practices of these things. Um, and no one ever steps up to say, like, hey, stop, um, because they're afraid of the press. It's like the sick symbiosis relationship that they have to keep everybody like status quo. But it got really like sketchy. Um, mind you, they're supposed to be on like an, a secluded island. You like they thought that they were. Like, okay, we're trying, but then, like, you see, like, they're breaking through the the fences, and they've got, like, these long lens cameras, like, pointed into windows and stuff like that. It's just, and it'd be one thing if it was just the two of them, and not to say, like, okay, adults don't deserve to be protected and safe and privacy and all of that, because those are human rights. There's something, and I can only speak from it because I have a young child. All I can say is if anyone tried a fraction of just, I don't know, looked into my window a little too close, I'm going to jail. I'm going to jail before having a child. Okay, we can have a conversation. But if I feel that my child is in danger, I'm going to prison. I promise you, you won't be able to harm them. <laughs> I'm going to harm you first. Just period. Like, I, I, the, the so to imagine like and i have a small one or, or, i'm sorry small two-bedroom house i've got a little security system or whatever right like no one's checking for me like that to have like a whole like big house and all these different angles that people could come in and that you're almost like feel like you have to like fortify your home and for exposure i can't i can't even imagine what that would be like but i know just like I feel like human instinct would be to protect your young. I think it's like a parent instinct, not even just like being a father. You're going to fight to protect your child. It's like the 
the mama bear, you know, and her cubs kind of thing. So, but anyway, so they go through that. They try to escape or, you know, go away from the UK, like take a break or whatever it may be while they figure things out. That didn't work for more than a couple of weeks. And then Tyler Perry saves the day until that didn't even work. But I want y'all to kind of give some commentary on that. So listener, if you've been hanging in there with us, yes, it went dark again, but such is life in a dumpster fire. Um, but let's fast forward to the the Tyler Perry saves the day thing, because that's the fun part. I like that Tyler Perry really reached out just to be supportive, not like to be a fangirl, not to get up in her DMs or anything. He was just like, hey, it's tough out here. Like, I'm here for you. And and then to be like, hey, I know that you are having a really rough time. Would you like me to house you for, you know, however long? Oh, the paparazzi are climbing over. Let me build you a fence. Like, the lengths he went to to protect these people. I, I don't know. I'm putting him up there with people that I think should, you know, get a front row seat next to Jesus. Like, they've done a, they've done some work. And not that he's Saint this Tyler. is the only thing that Tyler Perry's ever done. Yes, yeah, Saint Tyler. Like he was a good person in my book before, but this and the fact that he didn't talk about knowing them or what was going on until long after it had been come out and they'd moved into their new house and everything. Pretty stand-up guy. Also, like the interviews that they did of him, it was almost like you can. Maybe because I like literally read people's emotions, verbal and nonverbal for a living. But even in his interviews, he's so like, you can't fake humble. And you can't fake genuine. And he's like, almost like he's being interviewed about it. And he's almost like a little uncomfortable that anyone even cares. Like, it's almost like, I went and checked the mail. Why are you asking me about this? It's like, these people didn't have anywhere to go. And I had a fully furnished, like secured mansion with staff waiting around to do something. It's, it's like, it's, it's very like what other, like what else would a person, a normal person do? And it's just like, you think with all of the privilege that should have been able to set these two up for a comfortable life whether it be you know the united states uk canada wherever you would think that that would be not even an issue but like as we determine from charles it might be too expensive to support somebody new you know but it's like well no there was somebody not with no investment, nothing to gain from this, who showed up and said, I'm going to bless you with this because he has his own backstory and things like that. But I think just seeing people being mistreated and he's like, I can help in a small way. That was, that was the happy, that was the, the good thing. And I mean, it's worth mentioning that baby number two was definitely conceived in his house. So just the math on that one. So um, they had a safe place to, uh, you know, create baby number two, which again, goes into the happy, like they have their two kids and 
Um, obviously, the story ends with, I don't know about happily ever after, because these people have been heavily traumatized and will probably be in therapy for the rest of their lives, which doesn't mean a bad thing. But a lot of this trauma could have been avoided. So what are y'all's thoughts on the seemingly happily ever after as happy as you can be in such a a circumstance this might be really weird but it was a story that really stuck out to me in here where they're talking about the ornament of the queen that archie knocks off the tree when he's just like playing around and he grabs like a squirt bottle to try to spray it and his mom was like oh no don't spray grand grand and harry is like this is weird like that was really cute yeah he definitely has a strange moment when it breaks and he's like picking scooping my grandma up off the ground into a dustpan kind of situation had she died at that point no she hadn't died yet Mm -hmm. i think it's it's a it shows like that reverence though for royalty even though that's your grandmother you know but like the she was always several levels removed from actually being a real person she's like elevated to that of like a deity and so even something simple like that ornament or i want to say one of the schools that somebody went to it was like you wore a certain color because you were an eternal mourning of some like it was early in the book but like that sort of stuff is very prevalent in that and so it's interesting kind of like following this story just to see how he starts to de decompress and like unlearn he's going to spend the the rest of his life unlearning this shit and i'm sh- i feel like there's more books coming i feel like i've heard rumors of megan is about to write a book maybe i i don't know if it's a rumor or uh if it's true but i'm definitely going to read it and i wouldn't be surprised if there's like a follow up like memoir like down the road from prince harry i mean they got to make their income somehow since they've been cut off but i feel like they're doing okay with these documentaries and you know spilling all the tea um english breakfast english breakfast tea of course but the tea nonetheless so any like last thoughts um as you know we tried to to end this happy or whatever but there's still a lot of like you know in a memoir it's not always easy and nice, but also it'd be really boring. It was like sunshine and rainbows all the time, but there's a lot of good like lessons from this book. It's truly my favorite of the three books that we've read so far in this book club. So I'd have to say it's my favorite too. Um, I really love that more people are talking about this kind of stuff Um, as a survivor of this kind of childhood and life. Um, having it be normalized really is validating um having people i don't know call william a bitch it's fun because i just fill in whatever name of my family member i want to because similar things you know so it's really i love that this stuff is being normalized it's not being swept under the rug anymore talking about it like talking about how wrong it is saying it's not okay, I think is a catalyst. I've seen a lot of like the younger generation just like call out this kind of behavior if they see it in front of them. So I, I for one, love this kind of stuff. I'm going to continue consuming it and have weekly therapy appointments for the rest of my life. Um, Lots and lots of therapy to get through stuff like this, but I, I really like that it's normalized now. 
I hope they keep writing a book a, a year, tell us more stuff that they're doing and really maybe get to a point where people are held accountable for their actions. I don't know. We'll see. Um, yeah. I do kind of wish that he had released it before his grandmother's passing. Um, just so we could have seen how that played out. Um, but I think that we kind of get our answer in the end of this book when she does pass and he shows up and there's not a soul there. I mean, I, so I think you get, you kind of get your answer and how they'd everybody would, would have reacted. His grandma probably personally would have been like, this is it. I'm sorry. This is where we're at. Like we've been forced in this role. Everyone else probably would have reacted how they're reacting, which is like crazy people. So I hope that he continues to drop knowledge on us about them and speak his truth because they can't continue to hide behind their bullshit. I think I'm just grateful he actually took the time to write it because it's probably so many young people going through similar situations and they feel like they're alone in it. So having somebody of that caliber meant to dealing with a wife that was suicidal, an ex-girlfriend that really committed suicide, family members that were just assholes, it goes to show that, yeah, it's going to be tough, but you can still like keep going and find people who are actually going to be around for you it doesn't necessarily have to be blood because sometimes the people that are related to you can mean you the most harm so sometimes you have to make your own circle and start your own family with friends and people like that to really feel like you belong i think that's a good one i'll piggyback on that like especially young people who are your family is your family and really until you can financially support yourself you're stuck with them which is the reason why a lot of us are in therapy anyway but you know to be able to see like okay this person who has it all because i think as you know young people especially if you're in like a not so great situation you're like oh well someday i'll have money and i can you know escape this which great great please work towards you know building yourself up and getting opportunities and things like that however i think there's a lot of balance that we can get from seeing like somebody who truly has it all like immense i mean granted with money there's always strings attached to money it doesn't matter how much you have there's there's always some force or power or something tied to that money but to be able to see someone who had it all and could not live a good quality of life you know I don't really subscribe to that whole money can't buy you happiness thing because uh, my mortgage is due in like two days. And the fact that I have the money in my account makes me pretty happy because if I was stressed about it, I would not be so happy. So I don't really like that whole blanket statement of, oh, money can't buy you happiness. I like that the bank doesn't take my car away uh, in the night. Like I like that I have food to eat. Like that makes me happy. But I think the sometimes we look at like celebrities and it's like oh they have everything what could they possibly have to worry about and it's like why at the same time you know the same people who believe that were so shocked when people like kill themselves and it's like there's there's strings attached to this sort of stuff so i think it's good that he also is amazing storyteller i i don't know maybe he has it in him to do some like fiction um like I, I think he's really good with imagery so i mean 
whatever he decides to do, I think I, I want to say that he's helped with some films or something too. So he's like, seems to be like a creative, but I think regardless, going back to this point, like he was able to illustrate this like really dark story, moments of happiness and things like that. And to like spin it in a way that I think anybody who read this, no matter what walk of life you are, could like get a sense of hope from it. And that's what I really like about it is that while he should be the most unrelatable person to anybody like in this book club, but also anyone really listening to this. And he was somehow able to resonate with all of us on many different levels. Um, It's just like a good reminder that we're all equal in the fact that we're human beings living on this exact same uh, burning planet. Uh, I enjoyed that. So thank you all uh, listeners to this podcast, but also those here in the book club uh, for um, participating in this. Uh, And some of you I'll see back next month uh, for those listening. The book that we're going to be doing for the month of March is called The Body Keeps the Score. I do not have the book right in front of me. It's across the room and I don't feel like reading that far, but it's by somebody. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. Google it. Um, And we're going to be talking about that. Um, It's kind of shifting gears a little bit because um, we've done, let's see, we've done two memoirs and we've kind of done like a self-help kind of follow your dreams kind of book. So this one is more of a clinical nature. So it's literally getting into the science and kind of some of the research behind trauma, which I think is a good follow up to a memoir that's like so filled with so much trauma. Um, so I'm looking forward to it mainly as a therapist because I am like EMDR trained, aka a person who knows a lot about trauma and treats it. However, this is like the go to like trauma book that all the therapists talk about and they reference it all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I should get around to reading that. So now I'm going to get around to reading it um, for the first time. So I'm looking forward to doing that with other people because trauma is a heavy topic and I can only speak for myself, but uh, this mental health book club has been nice for me because I get to read these, you know, I normally read books, but like getting to read uh, difficult topics and also have like a group of other people to kind of bounce the ideas off of makes the, because sometimes a book can like fuck you up. I don't know if anyone's ever had that experience that, but I like to think that this little community that has like developed through this be through the, like through the podcast or through um, like recurring people who've kind of been in the book club and stuff like that, it makes it a safer place to kind of handle some of these heavier things. So I appreciate the community of it. But anyway, I'm going to stop ranting. If you're listening to the podcast, check back uh, in about a week or so um, for uh, episode one of March's book club. Um, But until next time, take care. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.